0: Our scripture passage this morning is coming once again from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I see some folks who are first-time visitors this morning. Uh, if you are, then uh, you might be interested to know is that we've been going through the Gospel of Luke for quite some time now. In fact, this is my 96th sermon in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we will, Lord willing, be finishing our study on the Gospel of Luke uh, at some point, either the second or third Uh, Sunday in September. So we are coming now to the end. In fact, uh, this morning our passage will indeed lead us right up to the crucifixion itself. Luke chapter 23 verses 26 through 31. Luke 23 verses 26 through 31. You may follow along in your Bibles. In fact, I strongly encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. If you do not have your Bible, you can use one of the Pew Bibles. I'll be preaching reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And I also encourage you to leave your Bibles open as I preach so that you can test the things you are hearing against the Word of God. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when the wood is dry? This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Now, last Sunday we left off in verse 25 of chapter 23, where the coward Pilate conceded to the voices of the Jewish mob And despite knowing and testifying that Jesus was indeed innocent, Pilate condemned him to death. Our text today picks up with Jesus walking along what is commonly called the Via Dolorosa, which means the way of sorrow or the way of suffering, where he was forced to carry his cross to the site of his execution outside the city walls of Jerusalem on the hill of Calvary. Now, beloved, as we see Jesus walking this way of suffering, we should remember that already Jesus has been suffering tremendously. He suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane as He went before His Father in prayer, pleading with Him that if there was any way at all, remove the cup, the cup of the wrath of the Father that Jesus knew He was about to drink on the cross. Mark tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said that his soul was brought to the point of death. Then he went on to suffer more anguish in the Garden as he was betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas Iscariot. He was then brought to the house of the high priest and there, outside of the house of the high priest, he suffered Again, under the hands of the temple guards who blindfolded Him, who mocked Him, who spit on Him, who blasphemed Him, who beat Him while Jesus awaited His trial. He suffered in His trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin as He had to listen to their lies and blasphemous claims. He suffered before Pilate as he stood once again listening to the lies and blasphemous claims that the Jews levied against him, he suffered before Herod as he had to once again listen to those false claims and as Herod's soldiers openly mocked him. Then as he was sent back to Pilate and was condemned to die, we know that Jesus suffered yet again as he was subjected to a Roman scourging. Now, Luke does not mention the scourging of Jesus, but again, Mark does. We know that Jesus was scourged. He was beat with the cruel flagellum. The flagellum was a whip whose thongs were laced with bone and lead. It was a beating so, so severe that it oftentimes left its victim dead or on the verge of death as their flesh was ripped off their body with every lash exposing their bones and tendons and innards. Now as Luke notes, Jesus is led away. And He's made to walk on what had to be one of the longest routes leading out of the holy city to the mount of His death, all the while being forced to carry his own cross. And it is no wonder, I think, when we remember all that Jesus has been through both in his soul and in his body, it is no wonder at all that he was not able to carry that 100-pound or more cross up the hill of Calvary. Now, in our text this morning, Luke gives us the account of two events which happened on the Via Dolorosa. The first comes in verse 26 as Luke notes that one Simon of Cyrene was forced by Rome to carry the cross of Christ when Jesus lacked the strength to do so. The second event that Luke tells of this morning is found in verses 27-31 through as Jesus addresses a group of lamenting women who were following him through the city streets of Jerusalem. And what I'm going to do this morning, beloved, is actually begin with the second account uh, the second event that Luke records for us, Jesus addressing this group of lamenting women, verses 27 through 31. And after I'm done looking at that event, we're going to go back then to verse 26 and look at Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross of Christ. So starting then, verse 27, Luke tells us there was a great multitude of people following Jesus through the city streets. And part of what made up that great multitude were a group of women lamenting for Jesus. Now, who were these women? They were most likely not the same women who were part of his group of disciples, the women who accompanied Jesus and the 12 everywhere he went. Those women were from Galilee. These women, we know from verse 28, are from Jerusalem. These women were probably a group of professional mourners, we, we talked about this a little bit back in Luke chapter 8 where Jesus healed Jairus' daughter. These were women who basically made it their careers, although I'm not sure it paid anything, they made it their careers to gather together and loudly lament the death of a loved one or other tragedies. Here these women were gathering together to lament a victim of cruel Roman crucifixion. Now, it was, in a sense, a great act of mercy that these women, these professional mourners, performed because they did recognize the injustice and the cruelty of Roman crucifixion. You see, it's not just the death penalty. The death penalty in and of itself was not a great injustice. It was the particular method that Rome used, which was unusually cruel, crucifixion. And so these women they would gather together and grieve when victims of a Roman cross were made to march through the city. When these victims had no one else to mourn and lament for them, these professional mourners would gather and lament for the victims of Roman crucifixion. They were also known to give opioids and other painkillers to the victims so as to numb, at least to some extent, the excruciating pain of the death That they were about to experience so as these women were following Jesus and lamenting and grieving and mourning loudly for him he turns to them and he addresses them and as he addresses them Jesus says two things really he 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 speaks a prophecy and he speaks a proverb He says first that they should not weep for Him, but rather they are to weep for themselves and their children. They should be mourning, you see, over their own condition. And why does Jesus say this to them? Why should these women be mourning and grieving over themselves and their children because of what Jesus then prophetically tells them? He says that the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Once again, in this passage, Jesus is prophesying about a coming act of judgment that would come upon Israel. And we know that this act of judgment came upon Israel in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus sieged the holy city and basically destroyed it, raised it to the ground. Now Jesus has prophesied about this great event before. Something like eight or nine times. I forget the specific number, but this is not the first time Jesus spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This terrible act of God's judgment against the Jews and for what? For rejecting the Messiah. Most clearly and extensively, Jesus spoke of this coming act of judgment in chapter 21, verses 5 through 38 in what we commonly call His Olivet Discourse. And I did take two weeks to preach through that passage on May 15th and May 22nd of this year, so I won't say a whole lot about the Olivet Discourse. You can go back, you can listen to those sermons if you desire, May 15th, May 22nd of 2022. But what I want us to see this morning from this particular pronouncement of judgment, this prophecy that happens on the Via Dolorosa is this. First, it should not be lost on us that while Jesus from a human perspective appears to be the one under judgment, here in his prophetic announcement of coming judgment against Israel, he is showing himself to be the divine judge. I talked about this reality several times before, especially as we came to the events of the Garden of Gethsemane. I encouraged you all to remember that while it may seem at many times as if Jesus was being overpowered, as if He was not the Sovereign God who was in control of all things at all times. I encourage you to remember that was never the case. There was never a time when Jesus Christ was not in full control of the situation. He never ceased to be the eternal Son of God. You see, that Jesus never emptied Himself of His divinity. And here in this moment, on this road of suffering... He was indeed, yes, submitting Himself to the unjust judgment and condemnation of wicked men, but it was He, and we see it right here in His prophecy, who, would ult- who was declaring Himself to be the one who would ultimately sit in perfect judgment over all the nations, including the nation of Israel. Jesus is in an ultimate sense not being overpowered. He is, in an ultimate sense, allowing what is happening to him to happen. And when he prophesies of coming judgment, it is a reminder to us of who he is as the judge of all humanity. Secondly, I want us to see just how severe the judgment which was coming upon Jerusalem would be. Jesus only alludes to it, so we can't speak in ultimate terms here, but we get a small taste of how terrible the judgment against Jerusalem would be when it comes. Jesus says that the days were coming when these women would say, blessed are the barren, the wounds that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. You have to understand, for Israel at that point in their history, being barren was considered to be a great shame. It was considered a curse of God. If a woman was barren in Jewish society, the Jews, and I would say wrongly, the Jews wrongly believed that that woman was under God's judgment and that woman was a disgrace to all of Israel. Uh, Jesus says the coming judgment will be so severe that the women who have children will actually look in envy at the women who could not have children. They would no longer say, Cursed is the barren woman, but rather they will say, Blessed is the woman who has no children to experience this great act of God's judgment, this terrible tribulation that was about to come upon the nation of Israel. He then tells them it will be so severe that they will begin to cry out for mountains and hills to collapse in upon them just to end their torment. Now we have to understand, this statement of hills and mountains falling in on them, this was not the first time this kind of language was employed. Jesus is actually using language from the book of Hosea. And there in the book of Hosea, uh, that is the language that unfaithful Israel would use when the Lord would bring judgment upon their nation for their unfaithfulness. And so I have no doubt that these Jewish women, knowing how terrible the judgment was that Hosea prophesied about, they were beginning to put the pieces together. They were getting some clue as to how severe the coming judgment upon Jerusalem would be. Lastly, Jesus alludes to the severity of the coming judgment upon Israel with verse 31. And here, the prophecy turns into a proverb. It is structured like a proverb. A why, a statement of wisdom. Jesus says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now on the surface, this is an easy proverb to understand. Wood that is green, still wet, not properly seasoned, does not burn. But wood that is seasoned, wood that is split and stacked and properly dried, most of you know, burns incredibly easily. And so how does this proverb apply to Jesus, to Jerusalem, and to the coming judgment upon the nation of Israel for their rejection of the Messiah? That's the question. That's what many people wrestle over. And so you see, verse 31 is not only a proverb. Verse 31 is actually a riddle. How does this apply to what Jesus is saying? Well, let me tell you what I think it means. I believe that Jesus is saying He is the green tree. He, in fact, is the tree of life. The rich, lush tree which gives eternal life to all who come to Him in repentance and faith. The dry tree is the nation of Israel. And Jesus is saying then, as the Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle put it, if the Romans practice such cruelties on Me, who is a green tree at the very source of life, what then will they do one day to your nation, which is like a barren, withered trunk, dead in its trespasses and sins? Leon Morris in his commentary on Luke said it this way, if the innocent Jesus suffered thus, what then will be the fate of the guilty? As severe as Jesus' physical suffering was under the hands of the Roman Empire, it is nothing compared with the physical suffering that Rome would inflict upon the nation of Israel when God used that heathen, pagan nation to execute his judgment upon them for rejecting his Christ. That's the point Jesus is making. You see me being beaten, crucified, terrible physical torment. It's nothing compared to what will happen to you one day. And again, beloved, it is remarkable that here, in the midst of his great anguish, beaten within an inch of his life, barely hanging on, barely able to walk, it's amazing that Jesus would stop and pronounce this prophecy and proverb of judgment. It is amazing that he would take the time to do this. It was really merciful, because what are pronouncements of judgment? If not, calls to repentance. That's what he's doing here. Daughters of Jerusalem, repent. Consider your own condition. Know what's coming. Repent of your sin. And in a sense, he's saying, receive me by faith. It's remarkable that Jesus, who John said was always full of truth and grace, shows it to be true right now as he's barely clinging to life. But it's also remarkable that in this moment, he is still showing himself to be the sovereign God who would indeed one day sit in judgment over all the nations. And this then brings us to verse 26. Going backwards in our text this morning, verse 26, the account of this man, Simon of Cyrene. Now by this point, I think we all realize why it is that the Romans would make this man from North Africa carry the cross of Christ. It was very clear to them that if Jesus is to make it the whole way up to Golgotha, there was no way he could continue to carry this heavy cross. Someone else had to do it, and certainly the Roman soldiers weren't going to do it. And so what do they do? They just make this random guy who just came in from the country, hey, we'll make him carry the cross. if you really think about it, this seems like a minute detail. Okay? someone else had to carry Christ's cross to the, point of, uh, to the place of his crucifixion. And yet, it is something that was important enough that all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all three found it important enough to record in their Gospel accounts of the life of Christ. All of them mention the fact that Simon of Cyrene had to carry the cross for Jesus. Why is that? Well, first, Perhaps all three of them are trying to communicate to us the true estate that Jesus was in. They may have been trying to communicate to us just how weakened Christ was by this point. That might be one of the reasons. Others speculate that uh, because of Mark's Gospel he mentions Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus, that uh, the Gospel writers are telling us of this man, Simon of Cyrene, because through this event of carrying Christ's cross, Simon somehow became a Christian. Now, he would not have become a Christian simply by carrying the cross of Christ. But somehow, some way, Simon may have looked to Christ in repentance and faith. We know the Roman centurion, for example, who witnessed the death of Christ, said, surely this man was innocent. Surely this man is the Son of God. So somehow, it may be that Simon came to faith in Christ through this, and that's why the Gospel writers mention him. In the book of Romans, Paul mentions a man named Rufus, whose mother became a spiritual mother to Paul. Some people think that this is Simon's son, Rufus, and Paul saying Simon of Cyrene's uh, family became a pillar in the church of Rome. We don't know this for sure. We have no evidence. But I do believe that this event of Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross of Christ does give us a vivid illustration of three Gospel truths that I believe Matthew, Mark, and Luke would have surely wanted to communicate to their readers. Three truths. First, Simon carrying the cross of Christ is very much so a living illustration of Christian discipleship. Here we see literally... A man picking up a cross and following Jesus. This is what Jesus called the disciples to do. We heard this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Yes, we recognize Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry a cross, he did not voluntarily pick it up. And we also recognize the cross was not his. It's not a perfect illustration of Christian discipleship, and yet it is still an illustration of what a disciple of Jesus is called to do. Daily deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. I said in my sermon on Luke 9, the call of Christian discipleship is at its core, come to Jesus and die. Now the death I'm talking about is the death of our sinful desires, the death of our sinful natures, the death of our own lusts and wants, the death of our own sense of of sovereignty over our own lives. It means recognizing we are not the Lord of our own lives. That we are not our own master. That we are not in control of our destiny. We are not the ones who gets to call the shots in our lives. We serve a Lord Jesus Christ. To be a Christian disciple means that daily we must deny ourselves, our desires, our wants, our lusts. It means that daily we are to fight against sin and pick up a cross of daily and regular suffering for the sake and for the name of our Lord and Savior to follow Him. The visible display of a man walking behind Jesus Christ, carrying a cross, does indeed give us a vivid picture of the Christian life, of Christian discipleship. Secondly, beloved, I think Simon of Cyrene being forced to carry the cross of Christ reminds us of this great reality. Reminds us that it should have been us who were punished for our sin. It should have been Simon of Cyrene even if he committed no capital offense against the Roman Empire. It should have been him who was put to death and made to drink of the cup of the Father's wrath on the cross that Christ would drink. And why? Because Simon was a wretched sinner worthy of physical death, worthy of spiritual death, worthy of eternal condemnation. When Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry that cross, if divine justice were fully carried out in that moment, he should have been the one to walk up to the top of the hill and be nailed to it, and hoisted up among two thieves, not Jesus Christ the Righteous One. And beloved, it should have been us as well. We should have been the ones who were whipped to within an inch of our lives and forced to carry this 100 pounds or more cross through the streets on the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. It should have been us who were forced to walk up the hill of Calvary. It should have been us who were nailed to the cross. It should have been us who were forced to die a brutally, a physically brutal death. But more than that, it should have been us who suffered under the just wrath of God the Father for daring to sin and rebel against our Creator God. Simon of Cyrene is a reminder to us of what we and of what our sin truly deserves. He is a stark reminder that it is us and really the entire human race who is worthy of receiving the condemnation that Jesus Christ received on the cross. And yet, beloved, the third thing as Simon of Cyrene teaches us, yet, beloved, Simon of Cyrene is a reminder that it was not us. It was not those who follow Christ, who deny themselves, who pick up their cross and follow Him. It was not those who come to Jesus in repentance and faith who were crucified and who were made to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. It was Jesus Christ. Just as Simon was not the One who, although He carried a heavy burden, He was not the One who suffered under the wrath of God the Father, so too is it not the Christian disciple. No matter how heavy our crosses may be in this life, it is no true Christian disciple who was nailed to the cross and who comes under the wrath of God. Beloved, it was Jesus who ultimately died and drank of that cup of the Father's wrath And He did it in our place. It wasn't Simon who went ultimately to the agony of the cross. And it is no follower of Jesus Christ who will ever experience that sort of anguish. And I am not talking about the physical anguish now. Understand me. I'm talking about the spiritual anguish that Christ suffered on the cross as He drank drank of that terrible cup of the Father's wrath. No follower of Christ will ever experience that sort of anguish. And here I think, beloved, we have great encouragement for our souls. Because the reality is, a life of faithful Christian discipleship is difficult. If you came to Christianity for the easy life, I'm sorry, you were deceived. A life of faithful Christian discipleship is difficult. And if you don't find it difficult, the reason for that is probably because you are not a faithful disciple. It is not an easy life. Many will suffer for the name of Jesus Christ in many different ways. Some will even experience physical persecution and painful, brutal deaths like crucifixion for the sake of Jesus Christ. For many disciples, their crosses will be an almost unbearable burden, which they themselves, apart from the Holy Spirit, cannot carry. And yet, understand no matter how heavy our crosses are in this life, no matter what we suffer for the sake of Jesus, even if we should face our own deaths on account of Christ, beloved, we take heart. Because there is one burden that you and I will never have to bear. One burden in which no one who comes to Jesus by faith will ever have to carry. And that is the burden of God's holy wrath for our sin. You and I, we will never be made to carry that burden. And why not? Because Jesus Christ carried it for us. He's the one who ultimately was nailed to the cross. He was the one who was hoisted up between two criminals and scorned by men. But more than that, he is the one who would cry out something that no believer ever need to cry out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the one who took the ultimate burden upon his shoulders as he became the sin bearer. And as the sin bearer, he is the one who suffered the very pains of hell itself as the wrath of God was poured out upon him on that cross for every single sin that you and I and all of God's people have ever committed. Is our burden in this life heavy? Can our crosses seem overbearing at times? Yes. But take encouragement, brothers and sisters. Because just as it was not Simon of Cyrene who ultimately died on that cross, so too is it not ultimately us who must carry the heaviest burden of all. The burden of our infinite guilt. The infinite guilt of our sin. Jesus took that burden. And he bore it in his body on the tree. He took it upon himself And he took upon himself the very punishment that we deserve for our sin. When he, not Simon of Cyrene, not you, not me, but he, the innocent righteous one, was nailed to the cross.